How's everybody doing this morning? As you, uh, who who's, was here when I was last here? Is anybody, okay, so there's a bunch of you that you're first timers. So you probably noticed already that I speak with a little different uh, timber, a little different accent from Australia originally, uh, married for 26 years, um, yeah, um, well done me. Well done, her, actually. Um, but I uh, got two beautiful children, uh, Dakota and Paris, uh, 22 and 20, um, which, is, which is wild for me. Probably wilder for those of you that were here. I think nine years ago, this Sunday was the first time I, I preached here. And uh, my wife and children were with us on that trip. And so they, they were little uh, preteens back then. And uh, it's pretty wild. Now they're big grown-up buffets. Uh, left the house, moved to Los Angeles, left uh, my wife and I empty nesters. But God is good, amen? And uh, it's such a privilege for me to be with you. It is, as I said, nine, I've been coming here for nine years. It's incredible. And I tell you, in those, in those, uh, in those nine years, I've gotten to know your incredible pastors, uh, uh, Pastor Bill and Pastor Debbie, and I tell you, they're some of the most incredible people that I know. And I want to let you know today that you are so privileged to have them in your world. Um, I'm privileged to have them in our world. And um, I, I, I can't think of better people to have as your pastors to, to help you, to lead you, to guide you, to pray with you, to cry with you, um, to laugh with you, and share your life with. Um, I don't honor them today just because I'm here. I honor them today because they are some of the most incredible people that I know. And uh, I would, if I, was, if I was living here, I'd be coming to this church. <laughs> I'm just telling you. What great worship this morning. What a great presence of God. I was, uh, as we were just singing that last song, I was thinking, oh man, presence of the Holy Spirit so thick. What do I have to offer? So good what God is doing here and what he wants to do in your life. And uh, I just hope today that as I just share around the word just for a few minutes, that there's something that God has placed in me that he wants to deposit in you. So will you join me and just pray this morning? Let's just believe God, Father, just take these words that are coming out of my mouth. Lord, let them be from your throne room. Lord, that they would bring change in our lives. Father, I thank you that your word never returns void. So today we believe for great blessing in Jesus' name to come from your word. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with me this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. It'll come up on the screens too. Matthew chapter 25, I want to read probably one of the more well-known stories in the Bible, the parable of the talents. Who's ever heard that one before? We're just going to spend a few moments here in Matthew chapter 25 from verse 14, and it says... For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five more talents. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it 
uh, dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. For he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I've made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over the little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over the little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talents in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For the, to everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The title of my message this morning is Stepping into Influence. Stepping into Influence. Have you ever lent something to a neighbor or a friend and they returned it to you in worse condition than when you gave it to them? Or is it just me? One of the things my dad taught me is if you borrow something from somebody, make sure you return it to them in better condition than when it came to you. You know, if you borrow somebody's car, make sure that you clean it and fill it with gas before you return it. Like if you borrow the name, come on, who am I preaching to this morning? Uh, uh, you know, if you borrow something, return it in a better condition than when you found it. So even as the place of the borrower, you can bear influence. I remember once borrowing a car from, from, from a friend. I, need, I was going on a skiing trip, and, and the weather had been quite inclement. I didn't have a four-wheel drive vehicle, and I, had, I knew somebody that had a four-wheel drive vehicle, and they agreed to lend me that vehicle, and so I took it so I could go skiing. And when I returned it, <coughs> because of what my dad had taught me, I took it to a car deal, detailing place, had that thing just detailed top to bottom, filled up with gas, had the oil changed, and returned it to them. It probably cost me maybe $100 or so to, to do all those things and, uh, and, and uh, return it to him. Dude, the guy, I've never seen somebody so happy in my life. It was like they felt like they had hit the jackpot. They felt like I had done them a favor when they had actually been the one doing me the favor. Even in my lack, even in what I didn't have, I was still able to bear influence and take a situation which somebody would have perhaps been a little reluctant and turned it into a joy. Who knows that the next time I needed to borrow this vehicle, it wasn't a problem. See, even in our lack, we have the ability to bear influence. And I, I believe that in this season, in the life of this church, we are, you and I are being called into a season of influence. That, that God is shifting things, he's moving things, 
and it's going to require us to step out of a out of a passive position and into an active one. Perhaps you've been coming to this church for a little while and, and you've been receiving and enjoying getting healed and whole and discovering something new about who you are and who God is in you and what he wants to do through your life. I'm here to tell you that there is a time now to step outside of receiving and start to stepping into contributing. There's a season to step out of, uh, uh, you know, the thing is about the church is that it's both a, a hospital and an army at the same time. And that's hard sometimes, but we have to be both and. We're both a hospital and an army. We're both called to heal the brokenhearted, but we're also called to set the captives free. That means we have to go into the enemy territory and have take what the devil has stolen. And we don't take it passively, we take it actively. The devil is not just going to one day go, you know what, you're right, I was wrong. Sorry about that. Here you go. Here's the folks. No, you have to take, you have to step into the dark places. You have to take authority and bear influence. And God has given us these tools for influence. The story, the, 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 the analogy that, that Jesus teaches is that we are to be the salt of the earth and the, the light of the world. These are two elements that are designed by definition to bear influence. Salt doesn't exist to make salt saltier. If I have a bag of salt and I throw more salt in it, it doesn't make the bag of salt any saltier. Light's value is not in the presence of other light, but in the presence of darkness. We are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. We are here called, anointed, and appointed to bear influence. I want to tell you this morning that no matter where you're at, no matter what you're going through, no matter what circumstances you may find yourself in, God is expecting and has, has set you apart for influence. To influence your own life, to bear influence in the lives of others. And to build his kingdom together. That's what you and I are called to do. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We are active participants in all that God is calling us into. And I believe in this season, as, as this church here in North Calgary steps out of a season of, of, of consolidation and into a season of overcoming, I believe. I tell, you, I tell you, as we stretch into becoming one church in two locations, come on, we're one church, we're in two, two different places, we're going to be, before long, we're going to be one church in three locations, we're going to be one church in four locations, God is going to move, but it's going to require that you and I step into a place of influence. It's not enough to be passive. It's not just okay to just turn up. We need to step into a place of influence because God is wanting to use you and I to bring about and effect change in this community. And that where, where, wherever we go, God goes. Wherever we travel, His Holy Spirit journeys with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't journey outside of man. He is carried. We are the temple of the... Wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes. If you don't go there, then the Holy Spirit's presence isn't going to be felt because you and I are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the representation of Christ on the earth. And so it requires that we go. 
And we do. And we serve and we lead. That's the life that God is calling us to. A life of influence. And the thing is, is as I'm speaking here today, I can see the nods on, nodding on the head. You're loving it. You're going, yeah, that's right. Preacher, pastor. Person next to me really needs to hear this right now. Well, and there's a sense of agreement. I feel it right now. You're with me. You're going, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. The problem isn't me today convincing you of what you need to do or what God wants to do. My job here today really is to convince you to what you need to stop doing. Because I'm convinced that your yes is only going to be as powerful as your no. Your yes is only going to be as powerful. As you say yes, amen to what I'm saying to you today. What I believe the Holy Spirit's calling you into. Unless there is a no on the other side of that, then there's no value. Human beings are really good at saying yes to things. Uh, at, at, in the new year, we call them resolutions. We say yes to things. But who knows that your yes is only as good as your no. To say yes to getting fit and weight loss, I need to say no to laziness and snacks. Can I get a witness? My yes is only as powerful as my no. If I want to save money, I need to stop spending. Now, I can earn more money, but if there's one thing I've learned when it comes to money, you can't, can't out-earn stupidity. I'm just saying. Okay? So, when all the accountants said, amen. Uh, <laughs> but this is truth. If I want to say, you know, if I want to, if I want to save money, I need to stop spending. My yes is only as powerful as my no. When I said yes to my wife, Brie, most incredible woman in the world, when I said yes to her, my yes was only as powerful as the no that I said to every other woman in the world. Come on. That yes only has value with the, with the other no. And it's not one no either. It's many, many no's. Because the truth is, is that my yes is only as powerful as my no. Today, as you say yes to being influential, I tell you, you're going to have to say no to a few things. Because there's some things that easily cling onto us and creep into us and begin to take a hold of us. And before we know it, we can be saying yes, but because we haven't said no, it's not producing anything. And so we've got, so what we end up becoming is disappointed and disillusioned. Because we wonder why our yes isn't producing. Yeah, I really wanted to lose weight. And yeah, I, and I really want it. I really, you know, yeah, I really wanted to uh, save money. Why can't I seem to be doing it? It's because we haven't said no to something. So this maybe kind of come across maybe as a little bit of a negative message. I know I've, I've spun it well so far. But uh, <laughs> bear with me uh, a little bit as we discover some of the things. So I said my message is called Stepping into Influence, but to step into influence, we're going to have to step out of a few things today. And number one thing we need to step out is we need to step out of survival. 
We need to step out of a survival mentality. And the reason that we have a survival mentality is because we've allowed fear to take a hold. Fear is the prime, becomes our primary motivator when survival is our ultimate goal. God isn't looking for people to survive. He's looking for people to thrive. Amen? He's looking for us to, to rise above, not just live with or deal with. There's circumstances that are going to face each one of us. One of the promises in the Bible that we don't preach all that often is, uh, is this one. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise of God. It doesn't preach well at all. It goes on to say, but take heart, I've overcome the world, right? So there's good news at the end of it, but, the, but you've got you to be reconcile the fact that it's not all going to be easy all the time. There's going to be circumstances, there's going to be situations, there's going to be things that don't go your way, that aren't right, that are unjust and just plain not fair. But the question for you and I is not how do we insulate our lives so that those things can't touch us, rather how are we going to live and endure and, and live as Christ in the face of the things that are imperfect, unjust, not right, not fair, etc., etc. See, the thing is, is that God, by His very nature, is a redeemer. And I love the word, uh, you know, God really owns all the re-words. Redeem, restore, renew, revive. He owns them all. Implied within those words is something went wrong. Amen? Because he wouldn't need to do the re-words if it all went right all the time, yeah? So recognize that the nature of God is to take bad situations and make good things out of them. Many times in the Bible, we beauty for ashes, oil of joy for mourning, garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Um, you know, God specializes all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. These, this is his nature. This is who he is. Fear is the byproduct of, of, of us not putting um, God in the center of our circumstance, but putting ourselves in the center. When God is the periphery, fear abides. Why? It's because you are the center and it's around you is your circumstance. But when God is in the center and you find yourself in the periphery, you discover that his power, his ability, who he is, is the thing that reigns in your heart, not the circumstances that you may be facing. Back in the, in the ye olde days, um, we used to, there were some songs that we used to sing about magnifying the Lord. Who remembers that song? Remember the, oh, magnify the Lord. That was a fast one too. I think it was in the blue book. For he is worthy to be, uh, Pastor Bell, he's all about it. He, he just had a moment right there. But the idea of magnifying the Lord is, it's a very simple, it, it means what it sounds. It means to take a, a lens and to make something bigger than what it appears to you with your naked eye. When we magnify something, we make it bigger. We make it larger. See, I'm convinced that for you and I, we let fear abound because we're always praying, God, give me a smaller problem. But what we really should be asking is for a bigger God. So you don't need a smaller problem. You just need a bigger God. 
You need to magnify the Lord. You need to make him bigger in your world because you are an overcomer. Why? Not because you're awesome, but because he is. Not because you can, but because he can. Your strength is made per his strength is made perfect in your weakness. So don't despise your lack, don't despise your weakness. Recognize that then when you are weak, he is You're preaching the message for me. Fear is a robber. Fear robs us of vision because it puts us in the center. We become the only thing that we can see. And the world begins to revolve around us. But the Bible says, don't worry about your need. It says, don't fixate on the needs that you have around you. It says that he will take care of your need. And the more you focus on your need, the more you focus on your lack, the less you're able to focus on him and what he's wanting to do in and through you. bunch of scriptures. We're going to put them up. I want to read these together. First one, what is it? Second Corinthians chapter 9. Let's read this together from the screen. Ready? Two, three. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Can I get an amen in the house? Come on, who, who needs that over their life this morning? Magnify the Lord. Matthew chapter 6. Next one. Come on, together. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, for you, whatever you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, that what you will put it on, it is not... And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them are you not more valuable than they? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Can I get a witness? Come on. All these things will be added unto you. Are you not more important than the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, and yet God takes care of them? Come on, one more together. Who's enjoying this this morning? Philippians chapter 4. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ. Come on. Come on. Where does fear dwell in those passages? Fear only dwells when we put ourselves in the center. Because that's all we then can see is ourselves. See, we need to step, we need to step out of a, a survival attitude and step into a thriving mentality. Number two, things we need to step out of, we need to step out of blame. Step out of blame. The thing that rises up inside us when we have a have a have a have an attitude of blame is a sense of entitlement. Entitlement is the mother of, of blame. We feel entitled to something and it's not happening, so we've got to find why that is and who's responsible for making that the case in our world. They say that there's three types of people. There's those that watch things happen. There's those that make things happen. 
and then there's those that have no idea what's happening. <laughs> See, the people that make things happening happen are people who take advantage of the opportunities that are presented before them. They are people that often see obstacles as opportunities. Where people see an obstacle, they find an opportunity. And then they step into that opportunity, and because others can't see it, they become unique in discovering the opportunity and often, often will profit from it financially, intellectually. The opportunity turns the, the, the opposition turns into the opportunity that produces the promise. Now, here's the thing is that those that make things happen have an opportunity mentality, but those who are watching things happen often have just an entitlement mentality. Why isn't that happening to me? It's not fair. And if that happens for them, if they get more, that means that there's going to be less for me. This is a, such a prevalent um, idea within our social construct. And even politically speaking, both on the left and on the right, we have found a way to blame somebody for something. It's either that the haves have too much and they're taking away from my ability to have, or that there is a series of have-nots that are trying to take over, and because if they get to take over, then I will no longer be able to have. In both political ends of the spectrum, we find ourselves playing a blame game because we see people and others as the enemy rather seeing the opportunity as the promise. And here's, here's the thing is that God is not a God of entitlement. We see it very clearly in this scripture. I mean, number one, it starts off not very socialist of him. He gave one five, he gave another one two, and then he gave another one. It's just not fair to start with. I mean, if, if God was a God, I mean, if he really cared, if, 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 if that, why didn't everybody start with five? Or why didn't everybody start with two? Answer? I don't know. I have no idea. I don't understand. But what I do understand is that no matter whether you got one or whether you got five, there was equal expectation. There was equal expectation to then take what you have and then to utilize that to produce something. The thing is, is that the, one, the person with one would have been the person with two had they done the right thing. The person with five became the person with ten. The person with two became the person with four. There, the implication here is there is ability for, to be upwardly mobile, right? God is a God of upward mobility. No matter where you start, that's not your destination. And a sense of blame is always looking for somebody else to make a way for what, that which God has placed in your hand and said, no, you're responsible. You're responsible for what I've given you. And it's not okay for you to Expect that somebody else will do something for you. Rather, be responsible with what I have given you. To whom much has been given, much will be required. But the truth is, is to whom little is given, something will still be required. It's not just to the much, it's to the all of us. 
Because who knows that your lack is somebody else's much? I mean, we got no clue in our Western society what lack really is. In the United States, the most impoverished people in the United States are better off than 90% of the population of the world in terms of their income, their ability to have a roof over their head, food in their belly. Do you know, in the United States, I don't know what it's like here in Canada, but in square footage, we have more storage per capita, that is, places to put the stuff we don't use, than the rest of the world has for, as roof over their head living. Let me just say that again. We have more square footage of storage per person, that is, for the things that we have but we don't use, than the rest of the world has just to live. And yet, how often do we play the blame game? Well, I can't do that because of this. And for me to achieve means somebody else needs to change. For me to do what God's calling me to do, I'm being held back by some other person. I can't do what God's calling me to do. I can't do this thing. I can't be this person. I can't be a person of influence because, because without their permission, without them changing, I can't do. Can you see how it just turns into this cycle? We have to stop blaming, stop having a sense of entitlement. I mean, the thing is, is that blame primarily is a byproduct of our sin nature. And it's from the very beginning. The first thing Adam did when God called him out on his sin was what? Blame Eve. He said, hey, wasn't me. It was the woman. And men have been doing this ever since. We're always looking, Adam, this is the first sin, the first non-obedience. And the, what is the instinctive reaction? Wasn't me. Went shaggy on it. Some of you know what that reference is. All right. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's all good. Don't Google it. Um, blame gets in the way of our ability to bear influence. Don't play the blame game. When we play the blame game, our circumstances rule our lives. We believe that the, the whole game of life is fixed and we have no room for, to maneuver or to move. And we'll never bear influence that way. Number three, we need to step out of comparison. Because comparison becomes our justification. Well, they've got more, I've got less, so I can't bear influence. If I had more, then maybe I, I could give it a go, but I don't. And comparison is such a, a cruel master because we use it as a justification for inaction. I can tell you as a pastor, I've done it myself in pastoring my church. I've looked at other churches and I see the things that they're doing and, and the, 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 the influence that they're bearing in their, in their communities. And I, I would literally say these things to myself. Well, if I had those kind of resources, then I'd do that too. You know, if I had the man of 
money that they had, then I would do that as well. If I had the, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of uh, people that they have in their church, because who knows, my people are terrible. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's just got great people. They're so talented. If I had those people, then I would, would do things. And the comparisons, the uh, comparison analysis comes in and it says to us, well, you don't need to do anything because you, you don't have what they have, so just go on your merry way. What I discovered was when I chose not to step out of comparison to start actually using what God had given me, it was amazing to me what we were able to do. One of the things that we did in our church Right from the very beginning, we started our church in Vancouver with zero people. Well, there was four of us. There was my wife and myself and our two children. We began to gather a small group of people. And the first actual meeting, a real meeting of any kind, which was my wife and myself and my son, my daughter, and then this one other family that we had met, the two of them and their three children, um, it was in my living room. I played guitar, had, a, had the big screen TV behind. When my son was sitting on the side, he, he was clicking through the, the PowerPoint slides for the words. So everyone knew what to do, knew what to sing. My daughter, who was 11 at the time, was upstairs taking, and in the master bedroom taking care of the kids. Well, we called it children's church, but we were just hoping that somebody didn't die. You know what I'm saying? So... Uh, The service would be over when the timer went on the oven because uh, we had pizza cooking there because who knows that if you're going to start a church, pizza is the 101 necessity, All right? So I had to keep the preaching short because you could hear the ticking in the background the whole time. But I remember that first service um, that we had together and we, we, went, we did the whole gamut, man. We did the, we did the worship. We did the preaching. We took up an offering. And we took, it was the first offering that we were taken up. We just opened the church bank account. There was zero dollar. Well, there was one dollar in it because they didn't have a dollar to open the account. And that was all the money that was in the account. We took up this first offering and, and it was, and it was $1,500. That, well, that was good. Now, I'll be honest. I knew where the money came from. <laughs> I looked, okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. I put in 500 and the other family that were there, they put in $1,000. Now, we had 1500 bucks and that was all we had. We had nothing, no money. We, we were applying to church. And I remember that next week, I was driving around and, uh, and I saw this church in town, the biggest church in town, and, and I was driving past that church and I saw the sign and, 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 I, and I went home and I Googled this church. And when I Googled the church, the first thing that popped up on their website was this video from the pastor talking about how they were in this um, build, building campaign. They were, they were uh, uh, building a new church building, and he was calling on the people and others in the community to help to contribute, that they'd raised a bunch of money. They were coming up to a deadline. They needed to raise another million dollars or something, and, they just, they, and they were, they'd come up short. And would you consider contributing? And I just remember God saying to me, Give to this guy. 
I'm here to plant a church. I've got no money. I've got nothing. I mean, my, my kid's doing PowerPoint, and my, my daughter's trying to stop children killing themselves on Sunday morning. I mean, that's the extent of it. It's a pizza party, really, is what it is. But, and I remember going to the, to the next Sunday. It's the same group of people. And uh, said, listen, this is, what, this, is what I, this is what I feel like God's saying, that we need to give everything that we have to these people. Now, this isn't a small church. They've got resources. They've got, they got everything that we don't have. They've got, they got people. I mean, this is a church of, of 4,000 people. We are a church of no people. They have all kinds of resources. We have no resources. But I just felt like, and I feel like God said to me, Darren, if you want me to bless what you're going to do in this community, I need you to bless what I'm already blessing. So I was like, all right. Wrote the check, $1,500. Boom. But out of that, we saw God do certain incredible things in our own lives. We had no equipment, no resources. Another, another church in town, so we were ready to go public with our meetings. Um, was, was closing down, gave us all of our equipment. We inherited a whole bunch of stuff, probably about $200,000 worth of equipment, just like that. It didn't cost us a cent. We, I learned something. So we started engaging with the community. We started, what could we do for a community? And I remember we were only 30 people in our church. Um, we, there was a couple in our, in our church who had problems with their vehicle so we just thought I just thought look let's just I'll gather some of the people behind closed doors we'll put get some money together and we'll buy them a car well we raised way more money than I thought so I thought what are we going to do I said well let's buy them two cars so we did they were they weren't brand new cars they were they were they worked they were going to get them through maybe for another year but it was something that we could do and I remember forget the joy of presenting them with, the, with these vehicles, we presented them with one, and then you just imagine that, what it was when the next one rolled around the corner. I thought to myself, man, that, that was fun. So then we began to do this thing every year where we would give cars away. So every, every Easter, for five years, we gave cars away. And the first year we raised, I think we raised 3500 We bought two cars with that. The next year, we raised... Uh, we raised uh, nine and a half thousand, and we helped a, a veteran in our community um, who had uh, been shot by a sniper in Iraq um, in the face, and uh, was very disfigured and obviously suffered a lot of trauma. Was really struggling. We were able to buy him this great car, and then give him some cash as well. The next year, we bought a, uh, we raised almost twenty thousand dollars. The next year. $30,000, the next year, $39,000. In a few, few years, and on the last year we gave away this, um, we had a, a, uh, the family that we were in contact with, and they, we gave them, a, uh, they had a handicapped child, and they, but they'd never had a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. Can I just tell you, those things are expensive, man. They're expensive. I wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't down. This, this one, I was like, no, these people, we get, we're going to give them the very best. And so we bought them the Mac Daddy 
handicap, wheelchair. I'm talking the suspension would go down and the doors would open and the ramp would come out and the, the whole thing. I tell you, I've never had more fun in church. Never had more fun in church. But you know what? And people go, well, you know, that was great. You guys, but... No, we were able to do that, not because we had the resources in that moment. It's because of the seed we sowed back when we had nothing and that we gave. So when you're playing the comparison game, you're always saying, well, I can't because I don't have. And they have, so that's why they're doing. But you've got to get past it, folks. And you've got to say, God, what have I got? Take the one talent you have and use it. Don't allow your comparison to justify I love... What, um, what it says in Romans, it says in, verse, uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Notice here, we're justified by faith, not by circumstance. We're justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also access by faith into his grace in which we stand. I love this whole concept here because... Because here it is, faith and grace working together. These two things that give us no more excuses, faith and grace. Grace, unmerited favor. That means you can't earn it, deserve it, doesn't matter. It's not what you'll bring into the table that matters. Faith, an ability to be able to see what you can't see with your natural eye. When you combine faith and grace together, you can do anything. You can, you'll embark on anything. Because it's actually faith and grace that justify you. In the back end of the scripture, it says, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that was given to us. How is hope produced? It says here. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, perseverance produce character, and character, hope. See, our hope isn't found in our lack of bad circumstance. It's actually in the presence of them. And how do we, go, do we move through those circumstances? How does hope get produced? It gets produced through grace and faith, recognizing that there is anything I can earn or deserve that would justify me to overcome the situation that I face, that faith that I can see, believe, conceive, and declare something that is greater than those things that I can see with my eyes. When faith and grace locked together, influence is able to be born because we're no longer trapped by what we bring to the table or what we can see with our natural eyes, but who God is, what He has done, who He is, His capacity, and His willingness to see us not as we are, but through the lens of who Christ is and what He has done for us. That's good preaching right there. I'll clap myself. Come on. We've got to step out of the blame game. We've got to step out of these things that are holding us back, fear, justification. I mean, who, who knows that the, you know, at the human capacity for self-delusion is unlimited. Your ability to delude yourself and convince yourself of ridiculousness knows no bounds. Some of you are looking at me like, not me. <laughs> Every dumb decision you ever made, in the moment you thought it was great, 
you'd done the mental math. You convinced yourself in that moment that this made sense. Now, five minutes later, you may have realized that it didn't. But you had done the mental gymnastics, jumped through the hoops, convinced yourself that somehow you were justified in whatever action it is that you were taking, no matter how ridiculous. Why? It's because when we try to self-justify, we self-sabotage. But see, you can't justify yourself. You're justified by Christ. You're a new creation. So let's step into influence, amen? We need to step into, into influence. And to step into influence, we have to believe in this one concept, the power of transformation. That God is able to transform things. Because if God can't transform something, if he can't change something, then what's the use of bearing influence? If I'm just going to influence something, but it's just going to remain the same, I've got to believe that there is something that can happen, that there is some transformation that's able to take place. And the first thing we have to do is realize that, number one, that we've got to find the transformation in us. We have to know that God wants to transform you. He wants to transform me. If I don't believe that God wants to transform me, why would I believe that he wants to transform you? And we've got to, look, we've got to, we've got to help ourselves out here a little bit. Sometimes we, we believe that God is done transforming us. As long as you have breath in your lungs and a beating heart, God is not finished with you. I'm just saying and when we find ourselves using excuses and saying things like, well, this is just who I am. This is just how I'm wired. Sounds really good, doesn't it? Like, it's convincing. Well, this is, you know, that's okay for them, but this is how God made me. What we're actually saying is that God has finished with me. God, you've done everything that there is to do. No more to be done. It's the most arrogant thing you could ever say. And when you find yourself, those words coming out saying, well, that's, you know, this is just, when, look, it's so easy to say. It's so convincing. Well, that's your personality, and, th and that's not my personality. This is, this is just who I am. I get it. We're all different. We're all created by God, and we're all different. We're all unique. But isn't it interesting that we're all, in our, all our uniqueness, we're all called to the same thing. Like, there's only one calling. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Some of you might this morning be thinking to yourself, I'm not sure, oh, what's my calling? I'm not sure what God's calling me to. He's calling you to the same thing as the person next to you has been called to, to reconcile people to Christ. Yes, you are unique, but your uniqueness is not your calling. Your uniqueness is your context. Let me say that again. Your uniqueness is not your calling. Your uniqueness is your context. Wherever you are, whether you, whether you are a stay-at-home mom or whether you're a student, whether you work in a job, whether you're an employee or an employer, whether you are whatever, whatever environment you find yourself in, God is calling you to be a reconciler, to reconcile people to Christ. That's your job. That's the ministry. The context is the uniqueness. And so often we think that context or the uniqueness is the calling. 
It's not. You don't get out, to, get out of being a minister of reconciliation. That's what we're all called to do. We're all called to the same thing. One God, one spirit, one call. Our uniqueness is merely the context in which that call operates. And the beauty is it doesn't matter whether you're a, a postman, a teacher, whether you're raising your kids full time, whatever it is that you're doing, you are a minister of reconciliation. We have the same call. So there is a transformation that God is going to do in us. That's the first transformation. The second transformation is the transformation that he wants to do through us. And the good news is, is the transformation will never be complete in either realm. So don't be waiting for a transformation to be complete before the second thing is meant to be done. God is always doing two things, always doing something in you and through you at the same time. You never arrive. Can I tell you that you will be ridiculous to the day you die? You will. There will be a level of ridiculousness. That's just the way that I say sin. It's just a nicer way of saying it. People seem to laugh a little bit when I say it. Um, but we're all ridiculous. The only difference between most of us, you know, the people that we think are the good people and the bad people, is that the, the good people have just gotten better at hiding their ridiculousness than the bad people. But we're all equally ridiculous. The Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, you think you're ridiculous? Let me tell you what ridiculous looks like. The things that I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, easy peasy lemon squeezy. <laughs> it's not hard to do the things, the wrong thing. It's hard to do the right thing. It's not hard to know what the right thing is, but it's hard to get around to doing it. But see, God isn't waiting for you to arrive at perfection for him to use you. He wants you to bear influence right now in this moment, in this time, in this season. He'll continue to do something in you, but he's, but he's not waiting for that to be completed before he does something through you. Transformation is an ongoing process for the rest of your life. See, here's the great thing. You know what? I love, I love farming because it's such a perfect analogy of, of what God is, calls us to do. It's like... It's like he began with Adam in a garden. I love it. He didn't, it wasn't a city. It wasn't a town. It wasn't a place where there was nothing for him to do. There was a place where there was work associated. So we often think that when, when we're in the perfection of what God has created for us, the ultimate goal is for us to not work. Right? And by work, I mean influence. Like when it's all good. Well, even in the garden where it was all good, there was work to be done. There were things to do. And so as, a far, as, as it was then, so it is now. So what God is going to do in us is it works through that same modus operandi. And so just in the brief time that we've got left, let me just look at some of the things that a farmer has to do. The thing about a farmer is that he has to... A farmer has to fundamentally believe in the power of transformation. Like, if you don't believe in the power of transformation, you can't be a farmer. I mean, no farmer plants a seed not thinking that something is going to come out of the ground. He believes that the thing that he put in the ground is going to produce something. He believes it so much that he gives his life to it. 
And so I wonder sometimes as believers whether we are really convinced in the power of transformation. Because we are reticent to plant the seed. And that is the evidence that we don't believe in the transforming power of God. I mean, if we really believe that God will take the seed that we sow and produce a harvest with it, why wouldn't we be giving our lives and just trying to figure out how I can get some more seed in the ground? How can I, how can I give more of my time, my talent, and my treasure? How can I? Because if I know, if I really believe in the power of transformation, see, the only limiter for a, for a farmer is the amount of land that he has to sow seed. That's the thing that limits him. His harvest isn't limited by his vision. It's limited by his land. And that's why we're called to take ground. Because if we take ground, we have more ground to plant the seed. And as we plant more seed, it produces more harvest in our life. Mate, I'm giving you too many messages in one go here. Let's get back to the farmer. All right. The farmer, what does he do? He prepares the land. See, the farmer has the ability to bear influence on something that is dormant. The land is just dormant. It has, it, it's, it has potential, but, it, but the reality of that potential needs to be released. If the farmer doesn't plant the seed, if he doesn't do the next steps, what's going to take place is that something might grow, but it will be of no value. Something will grow on the land, but it could even be destructive. But he has to be able to see that I need to bear influence on things that are dormant. It's easy to be, want to bear influence on things that are active. That there's already a spark. There's already something happening. I'll get on board with that. But how about bearing influence on things where there is no history of anything? Like it's just a... It's just a that's why I love architects. I love architects. Any architects here? Okay, I don't love any of you then. Okay. Um, <laughs> Architects, the thing about an architect is they have the ability to see what no one else can see. They look at an empty block of land and they can see a building. What? Like the building wasn't there and then they drew a picture of it. That's an artist. But an architect is starting with nothing. They have to, they have to see it in their mind first. And then they have to come up with a plan like, okay, how are we going to do that? What's it going to need? And they create the steps then for, for the people with the skills to then be able to come and do all the work. The same thing with a farmer. He's got to see in the dormant. So he prepares the land. What does that mean? He's got to clear away the brush, make a way for what is the next step. Number two, he's got to till the soil. He's got to stir it up. The Bible says to stir up the gift that is within you. That means to encourage yourself in your giftings. Don't just wait for other people, but encourage yourself in those things. Till the soil. But it's also the thing that is both tilling the soil, which is aerating the soil, but the other thing that's happening when the soil is being tilled is the stones are being removed. The things that will block what's going to be growing from being released are removed during the tilling process. And that's what we need to do in our own lives. I, I don't know about you, but I found it much more comfortable tilling my own soil than having somebody till it for me. Just saying. It's more comfortable to remove my own stones than have somebody remove them from me. Amen? 
Now, we, we can participate in that together if we want. But God has given you a capacity to see. And if we would just engage in removing those things in our own lives, we would make it so much easier for everybody. Till the soil. Number three, plant the seed. Self-explanatory. But after you plant the seed, you're not done. Because then, number four, you've got to protect the seed from predators. You've got to protect the ground that's taken. As Christians, we can, be quite, we can be better at advancing, but we're not good at defending. And sometimes we have to learn to defend the ground that we've already taken. We've got to defend. Number five, pray for favor. Pray for favorable conditions. You know, sometimes the conditions aren't perfect. Sometimes the weather is inclement. Sometimes it doesn't work for you in the endeavor that you're wishing to do. But who knows with a, with a, with a, uh, a farmer that if he, he, he will sow a crop, believe for the transformation to take place, take all the steps, but the weather isn't favorably, and he loses the whole crop. The farmer then doesn't go, well, forget that, Jack. He goes, no. Next season rolls around, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to plant the seed. And maybe in the next year, the, the conditions are more favorable. You don't stop planting. You don't start tilling. Just because the, fa- the conditions aren't favorable doesn't mean you stop. Just because everything isn't perfect doesn't mean you go, well, we're not going to do it this year. No, you keep going and you pray for favor. You pray for the things that you can't control, that God will move on behalf. The problem is, I think, as Christians, we're often asking God to do the things he's asked us to do. Come on. Come on. I mean, I'm not wanting to bash anybody here, but how often are we praying that God would bring revival? We really need to analyze what it is that we're asking for at that point. Because if by revival you mean pulling up your big boy pants and getting to work, then I'm all about it. But if what by revival you mean we're just going to sit in our prayer closets and pray and then God's going to do something, that's not revival. Because God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Because what inadvertently what we're doing when we pray in those ways is we're saying, God... That whole thing you did with Jesus, that was great and all, but it wasn't enough. We need you to do some more. Either Jesus did enough at the cross or he didn't. When Jesus said it is finished, it was either finished or he was only halfway done. And I think often what we do is we, we, we keep asking God to do the things and he's going, but I told you to do that. I'm here to partner with you. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a partner. The Holy Spirit is an active participant, enables you to do things you couldn't do on your own, but he doesn't move unless you move. And so we have to move. We have to do. Pray for favorable conditions. Number six, get the timing and the willingness to toil for the harvest. Timing and toil, timing and toil. You've got to pick the right time to pick the fruit. If you pick too early... It's not ripe. If you pick too late, it rots on the vine. Timing is important. Timing and being willing, putting in the toil and the harvest. If you ask any farmer, the busiest time is not the sowing. 
It is the harvesting. The hardest work you will ever do in church is harvest time. And you'll be wondering why you ever prayed those prayers. Because church gets super messy. I mean, just imagine next Sunday you came in here and there was twice as many people here. Huh? And those, all the other new people that were here, they're all unsaved people. They don't know Jesus. They don't know anything. They don't know about our rituals and our language. They don't know any of that. Do you think it would change the way we did church? I would think so. It would influence. It would, things would get messy. That seat you're sitting in probably wouldn't be there for you anymore. The one you've been sitting in for years, slash months, slash decades. Somebody else might sit there. What are you going to do then? See, things get messy when we get what we want. The busiest time is in the time of harvest. You better be buff. You better be strong. You better be flexible, man. That seat that you got ain't going to be there. That coffee is going to be drained. There'll be none left for you. There's no cookies. There's no time with the pastor because he's busy trying to win people for Jesus that don't know him. He ain't got time for you no more. And you know what? You're, you're going to get hurt and go, but Pastor Bill, he used, to, he used to talk to me for hours. You've been praying for revival. You've been praying... God, send the lost. God sends the lost. Now, pastor got no time for you, and now you're all hurt. I'm just prophesying here. <laughs> Number seven. I told you it was a good news message. Don't give up. Galatians 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we do not give up. The thing about influence, and I'm going to finish here. It's my fourth finish. See, see you, don't, you don't believe I'm finishing until a musician comes up that you don't know, right? So send, send, send a minstrel to close. All right. The thing about influence... The Bible says if one can put a 1,000 to flight, two can put 2,000. No, two can put 10,000. One is 1,000, but two is 10,000. There is an exponential dynamic that takes place that is unleashed when we gather together and we are unified in influence. Now, if you, go, uh, if you want to go fishing, you've got to go get a permit, Right? And part of the process of getting a permit is that one of the things they're going to tell you when you get a permit is the tools that you are allowed to fish. Certain rivers, they say you can only fish with this type of rod or you can use this type of bait. But I can guarantee you that to, if you want to, um, there is certain type of fishing you are just not allowed to do. And one of the kind of fishing that you're just not allowed to do as an as a, as a individual person is use a net. See, if you fish with a rod, you and a rod on a bank, no matter what bait you're using, you might be able to feed yourself. You may be able to sustain, maybe feed your family, maybe even some close friends as well with a rod. But there's a reason why they don't let you fish with a net. It's, 
it's because they know that fishing with a rod will, can sustain the ecosystem. But when you fish with a net, you change the ecosystem. Fishing with a rod is an individual pursuit. You're just out there and you're fishing with your rod and you're pulling in some fish and it can sustain you, your friends and your family. But if you fish with a net, it changes everything because everything that passes gets caught. I'm here to tell you today that the influence that God is wanting to bear through your life isn't just you casting a rod. It is you gathering together with others and casting a net because I'm here to tell you today that just as the, 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 the Department of Fishers and Wildlife don't want you to change an ecosystem, God is looking for you to change the ecosystem here in the city of Calgary. Amen. And that He's looking for you and I to gather together, to not just be individuals fishing with rods, but we would be fishers of men by casting our net together in one accord, bearing influence together. And it will see, we will see a transformation take place in our community. When we are joined together in unity, when it's not just our individual pursuits, when it's not just what Pastor Bill, Pastor Bill can bring to the table, it's not just what, what Eric can bring to the table, it's not just what, what your, your leaders can bring to the table, but when we all gather together, we stop fishing with rods, we start fishing with nets, and we change the world forever. That's what God's calling us to do. That's the influence that He's, he's causing us to bear, and that's what He wants to see in our hearts and our lives in Jesus' name. Why don't you stand with me right now? And let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for this calling, this destiny that you have on each one of us, Lord God, that we would bear witness, we would bear influence in this city in Jesus' name. God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, let it begin in us. Father, show us the areas in our life where we've allowed fear and blame and insecurity and entitlement to rob us of the fullness of what you're calling us to. Lord God, show us your way. Today, we choose influence. Holy Spirit, right? Can I believe that God is doing something in your life right now? He's stirring something inside you. He's doing something in you. But it's not just for you, it's for your community. There's a transformation taking place right now. Holy God. Holy God. Holy God. Thank you, Jesus. I tell you right now that there is a there's a prodding that's happening in, in your world. You're gonna you're gonna know that the Holy Spirit is stirring in your world. I tell you the best indicator is you got you got clammy hands. Clammy hands. You start feeling that it's like, come on, something's happening. God Almighty. Thank you, Jesus. Come and just let His presence come. Lift your hands to the heavens right now. Lord, touch us. Change us. Renew us. Restore us. We receive you right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.
Come on, there's a touch from heaven for you in this moment. Just, just, just receive it right now. Let, let that insecurity wash away. Let that comparison analysis be shredded. You are more than enough. God didn't make a mistake with you. You're right where He needs you, right here, right now, in this moment. And He's got an incredible job for you to do. Holy God. I speak fresh vision in Jesus' name of every person here. Lord, that that the dreams would rise, Lord God. That circumstances would melt at your feet, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Church, this week, there's just one thing I want to ask you to do this week. Because I know that the devil, he's a robber, he's a destroyer. And he wants to steal your joy. He wants to steal your sense of purpose and destiny. Every time you start feeling fear rising up inside of you, I want you to magnify the Lord. I want you to stop talking about what's wrong and start talking about Him. I want you to stop describing your circumstances to yourself or to anybody else and start describing the goodness of God to yourself. Start describing His goodness. When you feel some negative emotion rise up, just begin to... Say something great about who God is. I love the old hymn when the lion says, In the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you magnify Him, you glorify Him. When you receive His grace, you realize that your ridiculousness is just a small part of the equation. He's going to use you anyway because you didn't deserve it in the first place. The light of His glory and grace, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. They'll stop meaning so much. They'll stop consuming your mind and your thinking and your potential. In Jesus' name, let's be a people who declare God. Let's be a people who stand firm on His Word. Let's be a people who bear influence in this community in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.